It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Monday, December 6, 2021, a new week here on The Guy Benson Show. Welcome in. I am glad you're with us every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And if you cannot catch the program as it airs, we have a podcast. It is growing in popularity. Big November, thanks to all of you. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website, GuyBensonShow.com. All of your resources for the show right there. Join me tonight on Kennedy. I'm on the panel. 7 p.m. Eastern Time, Fox Business Network. Can't wait to reunite with my friend who could not make it to the Christmas party over the weekend. She was like running a marathon or some such. What a bummer. We will recap the Christmas party at the end of the show today. It was a lot of fun. Let me tell you about where we're headed here on the Guy Benson Show. Byron York will be here later this hour. I want to get his reaction to a number of stories, including... New claims that the media is much more hostile to Joe Biden than they were to Donald Trump. If you're laughing, I give you permission to laugh because that is laughable. Dr. Marty McCary will be here in studio. The latest on COVID, some moves being made, for example, in New York City, where on his way out the door, Mayor de Blasio is now going to impose a private sector vaccine mandate for everyone. In a matter of weeks, which would put a lot of New Yorkers, especially people of color, out of work very soon. Is there any scientific basis behind that? And what do we know now after a few more days of studying the Omicron variant? Do we have updates? We will ask Dr. McCary about all of that. In our final hour today, Congresswoman Maria Salazar, Republican, Florida, down in Miami, she flipped that seat in 2020. She is here to talk about communism. She has very strong thoughts on it. She's got a new bill out in Congress. We'll get to that and much more with the Congresswoman. Her maiden voyage here on the show, we can't wait to have Congresswoman Salazar, a freshman down there from Florida 27. Before we get to any of that, let's bring you a Fox News alert and let's bring you the stats on COVID. 49 million confirmed cases in the U.S. The number's higher than that, much higher in reality. The death toll, people with or of COVID dying in the United States during the pandemic, 786,964. The Dow soaring today, up 641 points right now, trading at 35,220. We also have some other news, and we can bring you this Fox News alert from the White House. As anticipated, the Biden administration has announced that they will conduct a full diplomatic boycott of the upcoming Beijing Olympics. Jen Psaki made the announcement uh, just minutes ago. Here's what she said. Cut 21. Uh, The Biden administration will not send any diplomatic or official representation to the Beijing 2022 Winter Olympics and Paralympic Games, given the PRC's ongoing genocide and crimes against uh, humanity in Xinjiang. 
and other human rights abuses. The athletes on Team USA have our full support. We will be behind them 100% as we cheer them on from home. We will not be contributing to the fanfare of the games. U.S. diplomatic or official representation would treat these games as business as usual in the face of the PRC's egregious human rights abuses and atrocities in Xinjiang, and we simply can't do that. As the President has told President Xi, standing up for human rights is in the DNA of Americans. Uh, we have a fundamental commitment to promoting human rights, and we feel strongly in our position, and we will continue to take actions to advance human rights in China and beyond. All right. This is better than nothing. I think the fact that Beijing is being allowed to host the Olympic Games, given not just their longstanding record on human rights dating back decades since the communists took over, but how especially heinous and grotesque it has gotten in the last two years in particular. And we run through the list all the time on this show. Saki mentioned a few of the lowlights right there. Lying and covering up about COVID, a virus that has killed millions of people. And then selling or donating faulty equipment, tests, a weak vaccine, right? Using that as a form of diplomacy, but not really doing so in a way that was helpful to those other countries. Pressuring anyone who asks questions, bullying allies of ours like Australia and others in the EU for simply telling the truth about anything related to COVID and its origins, obstructing international investigations into those origins. I mean, just any one of those things, like the the faulty PPE unto itself, awful. It's like one tiny drop in the bucket of the larger picture. Crushing democracy in Hong Kong, jailing journalists, dissidents, violating international treaties. I'm glad that Saki used the word genocide. I know that's the official position of the U.S. government. The administrations of both Donald Trump and Joe Biden in the State Department, they have been consistent on that. It's genocide against Uyghur minorities and other minorities in the western part of China and Xinjiang province. The bellicosity and aggression militarily vis-a-vis Taiwan. There are real worries about Chinese designs on Taiwan. These provocative flyovers. Actual like shooting war skirmishes with uh, skirmishes with the Indians. In that border region. I mean, the list just goes on. Intellectual property theft, widespread spying and subterfuge. I mean, there is a rap sheet for the Chinese Communist Party a mile long. The fact that the global community is then giving them this platform to hold really the premier global event with all the prestige attached to it is, I still think, absolutely breathtaking and mind-blowing. And as we Played last week on the air, Bob Costas, longtime sportscaster, he just said it straight up in an interview recently. He said the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, is in the back pocket of China, and they have this weird affinity for despotic regimes. So 
That's the reality. The question is, what will the West do? And the Biden administration, I guess, is trying to do something as opposed to nothing. I think it is indefensible that the games are still being held in China. But that's what's happening. And short of a full boycott, and I think there's definitely an argument to be made for a full boycott, at least a diplomatic boycott sends something of a message that this is not going to be just treated as a normal Olympic Games. It shouldn't be. Now, they get half a clap for that. Not even one full clap because another thing that we mentioned last week are reports internally from the Washington Post and elsewhere that John Kerry on the climate front and others on the State Department side have been quietly trying to stall and water down legislation in Congress that would really have some teeth when it comes to sanctions against companies that produce goods using slave labor in Xinjiang. We've talked about this a few times. The U.S. Senate passed this measure unanimously. It's stuck in the House, and the reports are that Wendy Sherman from the Biden State Department and John Kerry, the climate czar, they have been trying to derail this thing for their own purposes. So I think if you're in Beijing and you're Chairman Xi or part of the you know, CCP brain trust, you might be annoyed that the Biden administration is refusing to show up and engaging in this diplomatic boycott of the Olympics, right? That's some loss of face. They don't like that. However, if you are going to try to assess the seriousness of the United States of America and the Biden administration in terms of really resisting the evils being perpetrated, I think uh, the behind the scenes machinations on the Uyghur Slave Labor Prevention Act, whatever the official title is called, I think that tells a clearer story and speaks louder, unfortunately. When President Biden, remember in that town hall he did a few months ago on CNN, he indicated that if the Chinese were to invade Taiwan, the U.S. would defend Taiwan. Then they backed off of that. They walked that back within minutes at the White House. So I'm glad that they are doing this diplomatic boycott as opposed to doing nothing at all. But it's still pretty weak sauce in the face of Chinese aggression and brazenness. In the meantime, as we come on the air today, there have been a number of stories really in recent days and weeks about the buildup of Russian assets and troops near Ukraine. Russia has already invaded Ukraine, right, in Crimea, and they also had their little green men, as they call them, elsewhere in Ukrainian sovereign territory, and the world kind of accepted that. There were a lot of diplomatic sort of tantrums and wagging of fingers and they booted them out. What are the G8? There are sanctions. And I guess the Biden administration is reported to be considering new sanctions because the Russians very much look like they are preparing for an invasion, a further invasion, amassing resources and troops at the border. A lot of them, like 175,000 of them. So you've got an increasingly aggressive communist China. You've got an increasingly aggressive Russia, it would seem. Are these malign actors taking the international community seriously? It would not seem so. And why should they? 
Are they taking the United States seriously? Do they believe that the Biden administration will actually hold them to account or do they believe that the Biden administration is weak? I can't imagine that they sat and watched what happened in Afghanistan and felt any sense of deterrence from doing whatever they want on the world stage based on the response of Team Biden. And there is an editorial in the Wall Street Journal that you should read. Headline, rogues are on the march around the world. Iran and Russia give every sign they don't take President Biden seriously. So this isn't even involving China, this editorial from the journal. This is Iran and Russia. Here's what the editors argue. If you think President Biden has trouble at home, take a look at what's happening around the world. Iran, Russia, and yes, they mentioned China, are all seeking to establish new regional hegemony. And they're often working together to do it. Their leaders don't appear to believe Mr. Biden can or will do anything to stop them. Iran revealed its disdain for the U.S. and treaties last week as nuclear talks resumed in Vienna, right? They're obsessed with going back to the nuclear deal. Trump pulled us out. I think that was one of the best things that he did on foreign policy as president. He was tough on Iran. He took out Soleimani, for example. And Biden and the Democrats said, oh, they're going to start World War III by doing that wrong. It's wrong on everything. Very wrong on the Abraham Accords, for example, elsewhere in the Middle East. But they wanted to whoop, go right back and bring the Iranians back into the fold on this failed, dangerous nuclear deal from the Obama administration. So they're back to these nuclear talks. And what happened? The U.S. opened the proceedings, according to the journal, with a sanctions waiver to let Iran sell electricity in Iraq. The result? A senior U.S. official conceded Saturday after the latest round of talks finished that Iran had shown no willingness to slow down its uranium enrichment and even walked back its agreements from previous rounds. So that is failing. The Iranians sense weakness and desperation from the United States, and they are pushing their luck because they believe that they can. Meanwhile, on Russia, later in this lengthy editorial, the administration, the Biden administration, leaked on Friday. It believes Vladimir Putin is moving forces in preparation for an invasion of Ukraine in early 2022. Ukraine is actively recruiting men for their military right now in anticipation of an invasion. They're putting TV ads out appealing to nationalism and patriotism. And the threat is implied, but it's pretty clear what they're talking about. And why they're doing this. And it could come in the coming months. Quote, the plans involve extensive movement of 100 battalion tactical groups with an estimated 175,000 personnel along with armor, uh, armor, artillery and equipment, a U.S. official told The Washington Post. The U.S. is predicting dire consequences if Russia does invade, but it hasn't sold more weapons to Ukraine and couldn't marshal much collective action at last week's meeting of NATO ministers. The White House says Mr. Biden will talk with Mr. Putin in a virtual call on Tuesday, though after their first meeting, the Russian became more aggressive. And the piece goes on. So they're going to talk tomorrow. They're going to have a little Zoom call, Biden and Putin. Do you believe for a second that Putin is afraid of Joe Biden and what Biden was going to do? Look, I want the Biden administration to do the right thing and be tough on China, on Iran, on Russia. I don't want to run down the U.S. president when we're talking about foreign adversaries. 
The frightening thing is foreign adversaries are taking measure of our president. They're looking at the various crises here at home. They're looking at Afghanistan, and they are reaching a calculation, and the world is getting more dangerous as a result. These are stories we are following here on the show. We will hopefully have some experts, especially on this Russia development, as we, of course, continue to watch China as well. Dangerous times. Well, it's a brand new week. That's a cheery note to start on, isn't it? But this is what's happening. This is the reality of the world right now. Let's take a quick break. We will come right back. A lot to get to on The Guy Benson Show. We are just getting started. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned. Guy Benson will be right back. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. As far as Republicans are concerned, they'd rather the bills at your kitchen table be higher so the tax bills of corporate conference rooms and big mansions can be lower. In this case, let me tell you something. Nothing will be more expensive for American families than a no vote on the Build Back Better plan. <laughs> uh, it's the Guy Benson show. That's the president. A couple days ago saying it's the Republicans who want higher bills and higher costs for things to hurt families. And nothing could be more expensive for American families than voting no on Build Back Better. The multi-trillion – I can think of actually something that would be more expensive than not passing it. Passing it because it costs trillions of dollars. He talks about tax breaks for people living in mansions. The opposite is actually true. As we have explained, nonpartisan analysts have looked at the Democrats' plan and they find that two-thirds of millionaires will get a big tax break under the Democrat plan, whereas up to 30 percent of the middle class will get a tax increase next year under Build Back Better. And this guy has the stones to pretend that this is Republicans fault. Republicans want to give uh, the tax cuts to the rich. No, that's literally in the bill that your party passed with tax increases on tens of millions of middle class people. That's in your bill, Mr. President. Also, with inflation going up. And all these other issues, Republicans are not in power anywhere in the federal government. The Democrats have the White House. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Roe. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. And the Senate and the House of Representatives. And this guy wants voters to believe that it's really the Republicans' fault. And the way to bring costs down on everything is to spend trillions of dollars. I mean, it is just through the looking glass. Funhouse mirror stuff. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We are back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you along each and every day, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. Podcast is free of charge and on demand. One quick note, and we'll get an update probably tomorrow on this, perhaps from our colleague and friend Matt Finn. The Smollett trial might wrap up today. Jussie Smollett actually has taken the stand himself earlier testifying in his own defense. This is where I really wish there were cameras in this courtroom. That could be high entertainment to see how they're going to try to have this thing spun. And according to Finn, who's been reporting on the trial today, Smollett has been describing all sorts of uh, sordid encounters with these brothers that he allegedly hired to fake assault him for attention and money to sort of uh, gain some victimhood brownie points. And among other things, he is saying that he would buy cocaine from at least one of the brothers. So that's a bold strategy. Like, well, no, I didn't pay them to uh, fake a hate crime here with me, but I did pay them for illegal drugs. Okay. Not really sure that these are mutually exclusive things, but I mean, I guess... Desperate times call for desperate measures, and Smollett seems desperate, probably for good reason. How's that going to play out? We will bring you an update as warranted here on The Guy Benson Show. We now welcome in Byron York, chief political correspondent at The Washington Examiner, a Fox News contributor, author of The Daily Memo, a newsletter at The Washington Examiner. His book is Obsession, Inside the Washington Establishment's Never-Ending War on Trump, Byron, good to have you back. Hi, Guy. Uh, good to be here. You know, uh, we can talk later if you've got more on this Jesse Smollett stuff. It's really interesting. It is. Uh, it has been one of my favorite news stories of the last few years, I have to admit, because it's so preposterous. It's so embarrassing. It exposed some officials in Cook County in Chicago for, I think, obvious corruption. And unfortunately, it's coming to a close. Sometime very soon, it sounds like. I just hope at the culmination of everything that Smollett doesn't get off because all he has to do is swindle you know, one juror to get to a mistrial. But uh, it seems very open and shut to me. I don't know if you have anything in particular that you want to add to that, to that Byron, uh, but I do have some other subjects if not. Why don't we go with the plan? I'll be happy to okay. talk about anything. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Let's start with this. There's some news here, some breaking news on the Chris Cuomo scandal. So over the weekend, Cuomo was fired by CNN. We knew that some bad information had come out in some text messages. We had Howie Kurtz on the show, and Kurtz suggested they've, they've got to do something here. And shortly thereafter, this was now days ago, They announced an indefinite suspension of the primetime host and the younger brother of the disgraced, resigned former governor of New York. And then on Saturday, it was announced by the network that they had retained counsel, that they had begun investigating. New information had come to light. Rumors are that it may have had to do with uh, sexual harassment or something like that. We don't know. But they decided to move from 
an indefinite suspension to just a parting of ways and a firing. So the new news that just broke minutes ago is that Cuomo, I guess he has a radio show as well. He's gotten into trouble, actually. He's admitted some things on the radio that undermine some of his previous stories about COVID, a few other small details. We don't have to get bogged down there. But he is walking away from his radio show as well. Apparently, his contract was coming up with a Sirius XM, and he is pulling the plug there. There's also a report, Byron, that Chris Cuomo is preparing to sue CNN. So this is getting very messy, very ugly, and it's being reported that Cuomo is telling people Jeff Zucker, who runs CNN, is sort of trying to pretend, oh, well, we didn't know this stuff. We weren't aware of some of the you know, journalistic ethical breaches here or the extent of them. And Cuomo allegedly is telling people Zucker absolutely knew. So the plot very much thickens following the firing of Chris Cuomo, Byron. Yeah, I think the, the last thing you mentioned is very important, which is that they're going to start um, pointing fingers at each other here. And that, uh, I mean, look, this stuff happened really, really fast. I, I wrote my newsletter about this, I believe, on Friday morning, and I used the headline, you know, what does it take to get fired at CNN, looking, of course, um, at the Jeffrey Tubin case as well. And yeah. uh, what was interesting is, uh, as of Friday morning, the New York Times reported that CNN had not engaged an outside investigator to look into this. You know, it's very common for a big company, if they have a scandal or, or something, or something, they will hire a law firm, an outsider, to come in and supposedly take a disinterested look at what is going on. But the, the, the Times reported specifically that CNN did not do that. Um, and also, at that same time, uh, we knew that Jeff uh, Zucker had been very, very uh, forgiving uh, of Chris Cuomo the last time around, said, well, he had made a mistake. This happened in May. But it's kind of normal. It's understandable. You know, he might get emotional and put his family first. And one more thing, as of Friday, you had Brian Stelter, who's the ostensible media reporter, more like a spokesman for CNN in this case, saying on the air that uh, Chris Cuomo had just been put on the bench and he was expected to stay on the bench for several weeks and uh, might well be back in January. So that's as of Friday. And then, boom, on Saturday, he's fired. So something is happening and happening very fast. And I'm not surprised that they start fighting each other here, and it might get very, very public. Yeah. And by the way, I'm glad that you did mention uh, the Tubin case as well, because that's also an interesting series of decisions at CNN. And uh, people should not simply take a hands-off approach to that or let it go. It's a case that really grabs one's attention. And you say, okay, he was able to survive that. Tubin was. Cuomo apparently, clearly not in this case. Are you hearing similar things, Byron, that there might have been new allegations not related to the journalistic issues with Cuomo, but maybe personal conduct here that was the final straw? Or is that just totally unsubstantiated at this point? Well, it's slightly complex. Uh, I think it's unsubstantiated at this point, but there, there has been this idea that after the um, the outside oh, the outside investigator that they did hire after not hiring after not hiring one and and I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility that once the New York Times reports that CNN had not hired an outside investigator 
that they thought that looked terrible, and I did hire one. Uh, but once they had discovered um, at least as much as the New York Attorney General had known about um, Cuomo's um, efforts to help his brother, then they sort of they find something else. But I think they, they felt that they had reached a threshold point where just what he had done on behalf of his brother, the governor, uh, was a fireable offense. And that anything on top of that just made it easier and quicker. But I believe that CNN is going to argue that the, what they have discovered about Chris Cuomo's efforts on behalf of Andrew Cuomo is in itself a fireable offense. Now, one other part of this, before we move on to another media story, I do have to wonder, now that there's kind of been this public shot across the bow, back from Cuomo, right? So he gets dumped, then he's resigned from his radio show, and he is, or his allies are apparently, I wonder if he has a little uh, brain trust helping him go through his sort of uh, war room here. Rapid response. I wonder if Andrew Cuomo is now playing the role of Chris Cuomo and advising Chris what to do. But it sounds like they have leaked to someone, hey, we're not happy. We're mulling a lawsuit here. Uh, Zucker knew. CNN knew. This is BS what they're claiming. This is, you know, a public facing lie. I do wonder if you're the uh, the management over there at CNN. Do you really want to go through a lawsuit where there would be discovery and the whole thing could get extremely ugly? Or is Cuomo going to say, look, uh, I think I was terminated wrongfully. You disagree. We both have some very embarrassing things potentially on each other. Let's settle. And I wonder if CNN might say we don't want to drag our leadership through this either. Let's give him some undisclosed settlement. He's still fired. He gets some money and we can just put all of this in the vault and make this nightmare stop. I kind of wonder if that would be the likely outcome here. That's the way you do these things. I, I don't know what, uh, how long Chris Cuomo's contract had to run, uh, but if it had a while, perhaps they could just keep it going and he would be out of the company but still be paid. There, there's usually a way to settle these things with money. Uh, on the other hand, this is a, a big uh, reputational issue for Chris, yeah. Chris Cuomo, who is not an old man. He's really can't just go retire. He'll want to do something else in uh, in the media. Uh, so it is a reputational issue, and I think he's going to have to try to show wow. um, that he acted within bounds. I mean, he might have enough money to retire, especially if he gets some payout here. I don't know if someone's going to go hire him elsewhere in the media. You know, like, he might want to continue working in the media. He might need to go to some other line of work because you say, you know, he's he's definitely not an old guy. He's got lots of years, you know, left uh, where he might want to go work and be part of the workforce, whether that would entail media work. I don't know. I mean, given everything that we have seen and may still see yet, depending on how this whole thing plays out with CNN, because uh, there's also reputational stuff at stake for them as well, not just Chris Cuomo. Byron York, I want to ask you about a column that appeared that's getting a lot of attention, Washington Post, Dana Milbank, one of their sort of, you know, Democrat talking point guys uh, who writes a column at the Washington Post. He has asserted that the news media is treating President Biden as badly, if not worse, than they treated President Trump. And he purports to cite proof. 
and data. He said, no, the science proves that the media has been just as hard, maybe harder on Biden as they were with Trump. And I have to admit, seeing people fighting about this on on Twitter and social media, I couldn't be bothered to even weigh in very much or wade into this because to my mind, it's on its face so obviously preposterous that it doesn't even require any sort of factual rebuttal. I mean, I think the average person says, hey, did the media like Trump or Biden more? I think 90 percent of people understand that the answer is obviously Biden. They hated Trump. It was very adversarial. They kind of were addicted to covering Trump, but they hated him personally. The whole dynamic was endlessly hostile for four consecutive years, really dating back to when he won the nomination. And yet, I mean, this is a Washington Post column and CNN was covering this saying all this chin stroking. Gosh, golly, look at this data. This algorithm says that the media is just as mean to Biden. You are a trenchant media observer, Byron. You covered both President Trump and now President Biden. Uh, What do you make of this? I think it's nuts. I, listen, I, first of all, I, I agree with you totally. Uh, we should say that this is uh, an apples to oranges comparison in the sense that he looked at uh, press coverage of Biden in his first 11 months, and they looked at press coverage of Trump in his last 11 months. Obviously, the comparable uh, thing would be to look at um, press coverage of Trump from um, from uh, January 2017 to December 2017, his first year in office. But apparently that wasn't available. Now, Milbank had apparently commissioned an artificial intelligence company to do this analysis of 200,000 articles. But, of course, the, the, the coverage of Trump was unrelently, uh, unrelentlessly negative uh, in his first, second, third, and fourth years. Uh, I think there's a clue in the article that Milbank has kind of gone around the bend here in which he equates Joe Biden and democracy. Uh, He looks at this. uh, He says the the findings confirmed my fear. This is a quote. This is by, by being critical of Biden. Quote, my colleagues in the media are serving as accessories to the murder of democracy. Now, this is the kind of over-the-top stuff we've seen. I, you know, you're right. Laugh at it. Wait, hang, hang on, hang on. And just, there's just a not? few things, Byron. So to me, just the premise itself that the media is tougher on Biden than Trump is bananas. Like no one – I don't think Milbank even believes it. And the algorithm is nonsense. I see Nate Silver was tweeting about it saying – I believe the word he used was crap, <laughs> the, the methodology here – uh, it's it is absolutely ridiculous. No one, I think, truly believes it. No one who's remotely impartial, even a lot of people who are partial, are willing to admit what the coverage looked like for Trump versus what it looks like for Biden. They're not even in the same universe, let alone in the way that Milbank is alleging. And then for him to then bootstrap this claim into a further claim that by being so tough and so mean to Biden, journalists are murdering democracy. I mean, this might be an attempt to work the refs, but it's so ham-handed. It's self-discrediting, at least in my mind. Yeah, I just think this hyperbole on his part uh, suggests that there's no reason to trust the allegedly rigorous method here. I mean, he's he's looking for something that is to, to criticize. And look, there are... <clears throat> 
in any administration, um, there are our favorites. Um, the 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 White House will have a favorite reporter or a favorite columnist who will come to their defense at all times and say, "Boy, the president's been treated so badly." And in this case, Milbank is apparently auditioning for that role. Well, I just don't. I mean, um, he's he's in a very fierce competition with Jennifer Rubin for that. So I don't know your move, Jen. We'll see what happens next. Byron York, chief political correspondent, Washington Examiner, a Fox News contributor. Byron, appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Great to be here, Guy. Thanks. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. You're really doing an impression of Dan Aykroyd when he does an impression of me. You know it. And I know it, and the American people know it. Ah, <laughs> uh, come on now, uh, Senator. It's a great impression. Listen to this. Come November 5th, a lot of people are going to be surprised by Bob Dole, because Bob Dole's going to win this election. Doesn't sound a thing like me. First of all, I don't run around saying Bob Dole does this and Bob Dole does that. That's not something Bob Dole does. <laughs> SNL back in 1996, Bob Dole and Norm MacDonald. Norm would play Dole on the air on that show, and we lost both of them this year. We talked about the passing of Norm MacDonald from cancer a few months ago and Bob Dole over the weekend, dying at age 98. And you just read this man's biography. It is remarkable. Robert Joseph Dole born in Russell, Kansas, July 22nd, 1923. He served in the U.S. Army as a captain. He was seriously wounded in battle when he was deployed in Italy during World War II. Recipient of two Purple Hearts, two Bronze Stars with an Oak Leaf Cluster. He comes home after the war. He runs for office. He serves in the Kansas House of Representatives for a few years. Then he runs for county prosecutor. He wins. He gets elected to the House of Representatives in Congress, runs for U.S. Senate, wins, and serves for decades. He was Senate Majority Leader more than once. He was on Gerald Ford's ticket, 1976. He was the Republican nominee for president, 1996, 20 years later. A true American hero in an amazing American life. Rest in peace, Bob Dole. It's The Guy Benson Show. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. Brand new hour here on The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for tuning in. Weekdays, 3 to 6 Eastern. Tune in tonight on the TV side, Fox Business Network. Kennedy, I'll be on the panel. That's the 7 p.m. hour Eastern. As I mentioned, FBN. Hope to see you there. Fox News alert as we begin our middle hour of 3. 
Up, up, and away on Wall Street, the Dow closes up 646 to 35,227. Perhaps partially a reaction to some relatively positive inklings coming out of Omicron and some of the data that we are seeing. We will talk to Dr. Marty McCary about that later on this hour. I want to open the hour, however, with our latest installment of Woke Tales. Woke Tales. A few people sent me this. It's an op-ed that ran in the New York Times. And I read it. And my first thought was, how did this get published in the New York Times or any major newspaper? It's written by a journalist. And uh, her name is Erin Kaplan. She is a female black journalist. She lives in Los Angeles. And she has experienced something traumatic. Microaggression level, maybe macroaggression level. Here's the headline. Is my little library contributing to the gentrification of my black neighborhood. I'm just going to read from this. About a year ago, I decided to build a library on my front lawn. By library, I mean one of those little freestanding library boxes that dot lawns in bedroom communities around the country. Charming, birdhouse-like structures filled with books that invite neighbors and passers-by to take a book or to donate a book or both. You've seen these, right? There's a few in my neighborhood. People like them. I actually once or twice took copies of my own book, End of Discussion, and just put them in at random because I I got a kick out of that for some reason. But it's sort of a, a nice little sweet idea, sort of a communal thing. Have a book. Read a book. Donate a book. Fine. So this journalist living in Los Angeles, she decides to do it on her front yard. She writes... I had spotted the phenomenon on walks through upscale, largely white neighborhoods around Los Angeles and immediately resolved to bring it home to Inglewood. Why not? A library is not so much a marker of wealth and whiteness. Already, here we go. As it is an affirmation of community and cozy small town camaraderie that Inglewood, a mostly black and Latino city in southwestern Los Angeles County, has plenty of. We deserve no less. So we have the sort of uh, mention of what wealth and whiteness, so a bit of a red flag, but so far so good. She wants, she likes this idea, she likes the phenomenon, she's going to build her little birdhouse library on her front yard. She starts talking about gentrification and how she has been concerned about the gentrification of her neighborhood. Quote, I want to signal to my longtime neighbors that we have our own ideas about improvement and we can carry them out in our own way. The response to the library was slow at first. It was the first in the area. Some people mistook it for a birdhouse or a mailbox, but I was pleased to soon see people stopping by to browse and take home books. This is where the story gets deeply disturbing from her perspective. Then one morning, glancing out my front window, I saw a young white couple stopped at the library. Instantly, I was flooded with emotions, astonishment, resentment, then astonishment at my resentment. 
It all converged into a silent scream in my head, get off my lawn. The moment jolted me into realizing some things that I'm not especially proud of. So at least there's like some recognition of how weird and creepy this is. So there's an acknowledgement there that she's not especially proud, but not so not proud that she didn't solicit someone at the New York Times to read her pitch to write this whole op-ed and tell her story to the whole country. All right, she can't be that ashamed. She's like, in fact, I'm not proud of this, but let me write about it in the New York Times. She said, I had set out this library for all who lived here and even for those who didn't, in theory. I would not want to restrict anyone from looking at it or taking books based on race or anything else. How magnanimous of her, how progressive. But while I had seen white newcomers in the new in the neighborhood here and there, the truth was I hadn't set it out to appeal to white residents. Now that they were in front of my house, curious about this new neighborhood attraction, I didn't know how to feel. By bringing this modern cultural artifact here from white neighborhoods, had I set myself up, set up the whole neighborhood. Was I contributing to gentrification and sending the wrong message about how I wanted the neighborhood to be? She is having a personal crisis meltdown over a birdhouse with books in it, ladies and gentlemen. And she decided to alert the nation to this in the New York Times. She writes, what I resented was not this specific color. That's a Freudian slip on my part. What I resented, she wrote, was not this specific couple. It was their whiteness. These are her words. It was their whiteness. And my feelings of helplessness at not knowing how to maintain the integrity of a black space that I had created. I was seeing up close how fragile that space can be. That library was on my lawn. But for that moment, it became theirs. I built it and drove it into the ground because I love books and I always have. But I suddenly felt like I could not own even this. Something that was clearly and intimately mine. The whole point of this is to have people walk onto your lawn, open the thing, browse books, maybe take one, and maybe leave one. That's what these little front lawn libraries are for. That's the point. Then all of a sudden, she feels violated, like her space that was clearly and intimately hers was violated for people and by people doing precisely the thing that her action was designed to attract. And she admits she was delighted that people did this, did not feel violated at all when the people had a certain skin color. But when they had a different skin color, she was overwhelmed with resentment. And again, quote, what I resented was not this specific couple. It was their whiteness. Towards the end of the piece, she writes, ultimately, the moment with the couple I saw through my window raised for me a serious moral question. I mean, there's it's almost like a mental illness. A serious moral question she's attaching to uh, some people having the audacity to look at her 
little mini library, the purpose of which is to be looked at. She wasn't sure how she should act. Screaming at them to get off my lawn would be adopting the values of the oppressor. As my racial justice activist father used to say, I'll remind you, this is a journalist, by the way. Yet my resentment was not analogous to the white resentment of generations past. And of now, I'd argue, white resentment has always been legitimized and reinforced by legal and cultural dominance, a dynamic evident in everything from the rise of Trumpism. There we go. Have a drink to the current battle against the political boogeyman of critical race theory. Aha. So this is also some sort of disproving of critical race theory, even though it's a journalist basically doing the things that critical race theory adherents do, which is racialize everything. She is actually proving the opposite point with this column and thinks she's doing the opposite. And she ends her column by talking about the casual displacement of black people and how it's immoral. Based on a few white people looking at her little mini front yard library and she resents their whiteness. Open racism in the New York Times. For progress and equity, of course. It's Woke Tales. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Back on The Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. So some more interesting developments out of the state of Georgia, which continues to be a hotbed of political activity and controversy over the last couple of years. Last week, we talked about Stacey Abrams announcing that she is once again running for governor. She never conceded her race when she lost by, what, 50,000 plus votes to Governor Kemp in 2018. Now she wants another crack at it. And in fact, she's out there misrepresenting what she did and did not do in regard to that loss, because obviously respecting elections and not undermining faith in our system, that is a big talking point among Democrats when it comes to Donald Trump. And yet they have all glorified and have almost made Stacey Abrams like a patron saint of stolen elections within their own party. And they've all gone and kissed the ring. Every major Democrat basically in the country has come forward and said some version of she won or she was cheated, which is a lie. It's a lie that she originated. But she's trying to sort of back away from that. Here's what she said just the other day. Cut 20. And on the night, on the 16th of November, when I acknowledged that I would not become the governor, that he had won the election, I did not challenge the outcome of the election, unlike some recent folks did. What I said was that the system was not fair. And leaders challenge systems. Leaders say, we can do better. And that's what I declared. That's not what she did. She declared that she had won. She had not said that Governor Camp won, even though he had. She said repeatedly, I won. And she said she couldn't specifically explain what the fraud or malfeasance had been, but it was there and she had won and she never conceded. And now she's trying to rewrite history 
saying, oh, yes, I acknowledge that he won and that I wouldn't become governor. It was really the system that I wanted to challenge. That is not true. Will there be fact checkers all over the place calling her out, holding her to account? I wouldn't count on it because they're mostly on her side because they work in journalism and journalists are Democrats overwhelmingly. We've been through this many times. Here's another example. She was made a heroine by the left and the press because they agree with her conspiracy theories or at least want to look the other way. So that is some hardcore revisionism that she's engaged in. Meanwhile, on the Republican side of the aisle, the news today is that former Senator David Perdue has announced a formal primary challenge to Governor Brian Kemp. On the GOP side, I saw Trump put out one of his email statements that was not explicitly endorsing Perdue, but heavily suggesting that he would support Perdue over Kemp. He called Kemp a rhino and he called Perdue widely respected. Now, the thing is, Kemp is not a rhino. Kemp is a conservative. Kemp has been a good governor. The economy is doing very well in Georgia. He made some tough calls on COVID and keeping the state open, schools, mandates, etc. That made a lot of conservatives happy. Trump attacked him on election integrity, but he took all the slings and arrows and lies from the left on their new voting law. And he stayed the course and he refused to back down and he signed that bill into law while doing battle out there with woke corporations and others. So I think some of the things being said about Kemp really aren't fair and aren't true. Watching Purdue's announcement video, it seems like he doesn't have a ton of daylight between himself and Kemp on policy. Kemp's been a good governor. I thought Purdue was a pretty good senator. I've had both of those guys on this show multiple times. Purdue, you'll remember, was winning on election night in November and came so close to getting 50%. He ran ahead of Trump in Georgia. But he didn't quite get to 50%, so he had to go to a runoff, as did Kelly Leffler. And then off we went to that sprint toward January where a lot of Republicans were convinced, wrongly, that the system was rigged against them. Trump said it over and over again, and tens of thousands of Republicans stayed home, and the Democrats swept those races. Because, partially, I would say, Trump was sowing doubts about the system working. Even though he was campaigning for Purdue and Leffler, that wasn't enough. The message was clear, and in some of the reddest parts of the state, that's where participation dropped off most precipitously. So I don't really blame Purdue or Kemp for what happened in January. Or for Purdue's loss, for example. I think it was kind of an untenable position. I like Purdue. I like Kemp. I don't get involved in Republican primaries for the most part, and I'm not going to be supporting someone in this one either. I'm not. I think the Republicans need to come together and beat Stacey Abrams in November. I'm worried that a divisive primary may not, in fact, further that goal. Right. A really nasty primary battle with lots of money being spent and these two guys going at each other month after month. Trump weighing in. Factions developing. I'm not sure that helps against Stacey Abrams, who will have universal Democratic support. I'm worried that we're seeing yet another replay 
of Republican fratricide in Georgia, which is what got us not just a Biden victory in the state of Georgia, but two Democrat senators taking both of those seats in one fell swoop. And now they have designs on the governorship as well. So I just wanted to put it out there how I'm generally feeling about this primary challenge. I'm neutral. I don't dislike either of these guys, Kemp or Purdue. I just don't think that Kemp has done a bad job as governor. I think a lot of the results speak for themselves, especially on the economy. And his sin, his problem, the reason he's being called a rhino by some is that he wouldn't align himself with something that isn't true about what happened in the presidential election in that state. And he wouldn't do the bidding of former President Trump, who wanted him to say and do things that weren't accurate. And I don't think it's fair to hold that against him, even though clearly that's the grudge here. It's not a policy dispute. It's a purity loyalty dispute. And at least for now, I think it plays into Stacey Abrams' hands. And my hope is whatever happens in this primary, whoever emerges from it, I hope that in Georgia, the Republicans can finally get their act together, lay down arms against each other and go beat both Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock, because those are huge races in that state. But get ready, big battles ahead. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. Glad to have you. GuyBensonShow.com, our website for the free podcast every day, among other resources. I am joined now in studio here in D.C., in the Tony Snow studio, by Dr. Marty McCary, Fox News contributor, surgeon, and professor of health policy at Johns Hopkins. His book is The Price We Pay, What Broke American Healthcare, at Marty McCary on Twitter. I follow him. I recommend that you should, too, especially on COVID. Doctor, great to see you. Thanks for coming in. Great to be with you, Guy. I want to start, and this is a public policy decision announced earlier today in the nation's largest city. The mayor, who's almost done there, but Bill de Blasio went on like a local cable channel and announced this, cut 18. We in New York City have decided to use a preemptive strike to really do something bold to stop the further growth of COVID and the dangers it's causing to all of us. So... As of today, we're going to announce a first-in-the-nation measure. Our health commissioner will announce a vaccine mandate for private sector employers across the board. All private sector employers in New York City will be covered by this vaccine mandate as of December 27th. We're going to have some other measures as well to really focus on maximizing vaccination quickly so we can get ahead of Omicron and all the other challenges we're facing right now with COVID. All right. So as of the 27th of December, just after Christmas, you're going to have to be vaccinated in order to work 
in New York City, even in the private sector, not for the government working anywhere in New York City. That's going to be the mandate. People have pointed out that many New Yorkers are not vaccinated. If I recall correctly, New York City has a lower vax rate than the state of Florida does. Uh, There's a particularly high number of black New Yorkers, 45 percent or so, who are not vaccinated. And so there could be an awful lot of people out of work or potentially out of work based on this. Is there a scientific basis for what de Blasio announced, in your opinion? Well, I don't know about the scientific basis because we're all pro-vaccine, but when you induce a mandate on people already immune, which are about half of the unvaccinated, there will be unintended harm, and there's no science to support vaccinating people already immune. They have circulating antibodies. They're just antibodies the government does not recognize, and we're ruining lives by not recognizing it. And with kids, with young people, we're introducing unintended harm because there is myocarditis in one in 7,000 young boys who get two doses of the vaccine. So if somebody's already immune and they're forced to get it, they are now introduced to the risk of myocarditis, which is one in 7,000 young men and boys. And there has been a documented death from myocarditis in a 22-year-old in Israel. And that's a country one thirty-eighth our size. So if we extrapolate that number, there could be a lot of unintended harm from immunizing people already immune. But on a bigger level, there's You're talking this, about natural immunity. That's right. There's this attempt to sort of one up the next guy on I'm bolder and tougher on COVID than you are. And it's not healthy when we see political leaders doing that because, look, I'm pro mammogram, but I would not recommend mammograms for men and children, right? I mean, there's a point at which. There's no scientific basis. So when you talk about people who are already immune, um, there's no scientific basis. And he argued that he needs he's doing this to get ahead of Omicron. Right. It's a mild – it appears to be a mild infection. All right. So that's part of what I wanted to ask you about because there's a lot we still don't know about Omicron. And the three threshold questions that I've been asking now for a week and repeating basically to every doctor we have on the air – Is it more transmissible than Delta? Is it more virulent than Delta or other variants? And will the vaccines work? The answers still seem to be we're not sure on any of those three, but we're starting to see more indications. I've seen some data suggesting that it is extremely transmissible, maybe more so than Delta. The virulence, though, uh, seems to be pretty good news. And one of your colleagues actually at Johns Hopkins, Dr. David Dowdy, He tweeted this earlier. Great guy. He said, just to confirm that this is what we're panicked about. I know there's a lag between infection and death, but Omicron has been circulating in South Africa for over a month. And we're only seeing 20 COVID deaths per day nationwide with no increase in a population of 60 million. And I would add a population that is much less vaccinated than we are here in the United States hospitalizations have gone up a bit, but not in sort of an overwhelming way, not compared to previous waves or spikes in that country. People always say, wait two weeks, wait two weeks. Well, we've waited, we think, weeks and weeks in South Africa, and the doom has not arrived. That would seem significant and hopefully very encouraging, would it not? Very encouraging. I think you nailed it. And that's, you know, as the data keeps coming in, it's more and more promising. Now, I don't want to – I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I'm a little hopeful that the virus Omicron is 
more contagious and less virulent. That would be an act of mercy for the world. A lot of people will never get vaccinated because of disparities in access. If they can get build immunity by getting the virus in the absence of their ability to get the vaccine, vaccines are always better. But that, if we have a, a downgraded virus, that is less this is dangerous, a downward mutation. Yes, less dangerous. That's good. Now you're right. And on the transmission, there was that study on the Hong Kong hotel, and there was a description of it jumping from one vaccinated room to another vaccinated room with no contact. So that suggested, hey, maybe it can it can float aerosolized or be a little more contagious. On the virulence that we don't see severe cases with Omicron. We haven't. We haven't seen them. By now, we would have seen them. Anywhere, right? Anywhere. Like we, we, I'm, I'm looking for, and I'm not a doom guy, right? I, I'm hoping that we don't see it, <laughs> yeah. but I keep waiting for the shoe to drop of like, here are some really serious cases from Omicron hitting people. Because, you know, the argument in South Africa was, well, that is a, a major hotbed of Omicron. We don't know exactly where it started. But yes, they're not as vaccinated there, but it's been young people so far. What happens if it starts hitting older people who are unvaccinated in South Africa? Again, so far, there has been no big jump in scary stuff on the virulence. So it sounds like you're almost saying that a less severe strain of COVID that's super contagious might be in some ways good. Well, it may confer immunity to individuals that might might otherwise have gotten the Delta variant, which we know, uh, we with that we know that virus very well. And our threat in the U.S. is not because Delta was rough. It, it was rough, and our threat now is not Omicron. Our threat is Delta. I mean, Delta is still killing people every day, and as it burns through the population, we're still seeing a very select group of Americans get in trouble with with COVID, and those are adults with no immunity, no natural or vaccinated immunity who have a risk factor, those are the people, there's about 10 to 25 million of them in the United States. Including age, right? Advanced age. That's right. Adults with no, that's right. So um, those are the, well, 99.9% of people over 65 are vaccinated. I don't think people realize that. I mean, we've almost hit perfection with immunizing older populations. And for those people, sure, a booster may help. The data suggests it takes the risk down, but it's already starting off very low. So the risk of a fully vaccinated person showing up in a hospital with COVID is one in 26,000 per week, all ages. If you're younger, it's even far lower. Well, and that's an important point because sometimes people who might be vax skeptical say, well, look at all these people like you, Guy Benson, who got a breakthrough case. You talk about the vaccines. People are getting infected all over the place with Delta or Omicron or whatever. So many of the cases on Omicron are, are among vaccinated people because they're the ones who've been traveling. and You have to be vaccinated basically to travel internationally. So that might skew it a little bit. But they're saying it's not preventing this. Well, what it's preventing overwhelmingly is going to the hospital because you're super sick or dying. And that right? was, that's really, really the point. That was always the goal. Flatten the curve. That was always the goal. And we've lost sight. And we did this a little bit. We screwed up a little bit in medicine because we just started talking about efficacy. Mm-hmm. And that was in terms of testing positive. But it, it's not about testing positive. It's about preventing hospitalizations. The numbers are still impeccably great. And the protection is still holding up great. So the notion vaccines are not working is not true. They may not be working in preventing a positive test result. That is a 
asymptomatic bowel breakthrough, but they are working and they're working amazing and sustained at preventing hospitalizations. And that's true also of natural immunity, which is a point yes. that, that, and in some ways, there are some studies suggesting that it would work even better. Yep. Right, so I like to think that I have the best immunity. Hybrid. With two, I've got both. Yeah, <laughs> I've got both shots. I'm not doing a booster yet because I got. You don't need na- it. Nature gave me a booster. That's right. Uh, back in August, I want to ask you about this Norway outbreak a little bit because, on some level, at first blush, it seems a little bit concerning, and we only have about two minutes left. But when you read a little bit deeper, those fears, at least for me, are allayed a bit. What happened was there was this company holiday party in Norway. A few people had just gotten back from South Africa. Every single person at the party was vaccinated, all of them. Every single person at the party got tested the day before, rapid test, negative, all of them. More than half the party, 60-plus people, have now tested positive from this party. So that is an awful lot of transmission among a group that is entirely vaccinated and recently tested. So that's kind of alarming. This is Omicron. At least a lot of these cases seem to be Omicron. However, not a single one has required hospitalization. Almost every single symptom is mild, and many of the people say they've already recovered. So it's sort of that's at least another breadcrumb along the path to definitely transmissible, uh, transmissible, but maybe not as dangerous, hopefully not nearly as dangerous. That's right. right. And look, if I had a patient in my office and I told them, forget about all the chatter going on about COVID. If I just said to them, and let's say they're, assume they're vaccinated or they had the infection, you will probably get a common cold this flu season. It will probably be mild and may even be asymptomatic. They wouldn't worry. They wouldn't be right. They would live their lives. And so that's what I think we might need to calibrate our expectations towards because as you see states with 95% vaccination rates for adults, you're still going to see these mild breakthrough infections go through. You're never going to stop that, although I see the Norwegian government is now going back and putting in a bunch of restrictions, and I think that's what we need to guard against in this country. Dr. Marty McCary, Fox News contributor, surgeon, professor of health policy at Johns Hopkins. Really appreciate your time. Great to see you. Great to see you, Guy. We'll talk again soon, and we'll be right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. Don't go away. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Tell me how many have gotten behind you, American companies, to support you. Well, unfortunately, zero. You know, it's a shame that all these companies are scared, you know, scared because they are doing too much business with the Chinese Communist Party in in, in China. And they know that the moment that they give me any kind of uh, deal, that, you know, all their business in China will be shut down. But, you know, I never did this to get any kind of endorsement deals. You know, I I could care less. To me, you know, the the morals are way, way more important than anything they can offer me. But shame on all those companies out there. Back on the Guy Benson Show, that is Enos Cantor Freedom, recently changed his name legally to make his last name Freedom, recently a U.S. citizen. He took the oath of citizenship. We played you some of that audio. He was on with Maria Bartiromo on Sunday on Fox News Channel, Sunday Morning Futures, talking about his mission. I've seen some people on the left and media critics, conservative media critics, are saying, oh, this guy's doing a bunch of conservative interviews. He's been on Fox News too much. He's talking to anyone who will ask him. I've seen him on other networks as well. He is bringing his message 
of freedom and liberty and calling out despots everywhere. But because some of these people are just so tribal and obsessed with hating Fox and wanting to police what is an acceptable outlet where people are allowed to go to remain in good graces and in good standing in polite society, I think it's very revealing when all the guy's doing is saying exactly the same thing, a consistent message to anyone who will listen. And the message is against like, you know, communist dictatorships. He was calling out another basketball player, Jeremy Lin, for signing with a team in China and some of the things that he has said. Talked about dirty communist Chinese money. And he was accused, I saw, by a left-wing journalist of encouraging hate crimes. Remember, this is another thing that they say on the left. That by attacking the government of China and the Chinese Communist Party or just mentioning where the virus started in China or in Wuhan, that is racist or that is xenophobic. And that's going to cause hate incidents against Asian Americans. It's crazy. You can say let's not hold Asian people responsible because that's ridiculous and grotesquely unfair. We can believe that while also correctly calling out leaders who have lied and covered things up and are behaving terribly on all sorts of different fronts. They happen to be Asian. These are Chinese Communist Party members. Their skin color, their ethnicity should not be the cause of criticism, nor should it be a shield against criticism. We're talking about conduct. We're talking about behavior and actions. And to conflate that with racism, as we've seen frequently, like China or Wuhan virus, remember that? That was racist. This is the latest version of it, where a Turkish American speaking out against a totalitarian regime engaged in genocide and slave labor is being accused of stoking racism and hate crimes by calling out the CCP. It's madness. We are, of course, strongly on Team Enos on this one. And because we are frequently quite critical, I think deservedly so, of CNN, I do want to give credit where it's due on this one. Jake Tapper, on their Sunday morning show yesterday, State of the Union, he had sort of a monologue, a little soliloquy on precisely this issue, the West and China and the way that the Chinese government manipulates the West and engages really in almost financial blackmail to blunt And shut down criticism of their utterly heinous actions. And Tapper did not mince words. I applaud him for this. I want you to hear part of it. Cut eight. The allegations against the Chinese government go far beyond its treatment of Shui. This year, both the Trump and Biden administrations have asserted that China is committing, quote, genocide and crimes against humanity against more than one million Uyghurs, ethnic Kazakhs, Hui other Muslims, some Christians, in internment camps or converted detention facilities, according to the U.S. State Department. And this last week, we learned that this 2005 episode, which shows the Simpsons in Beijing's Tiananmen Square, the site of a brutal crackdown on pro-democracy protesters, a sign reads in the Simpsons episode, on this site in 1989, nothing happened. And that episode, that's not available for Disney Plus subscribers in Hong Kong. Disney has not responded to requests for comment. That Simpsons episode in Hong Kong disappeared like Peng Shui, disappeared like citizen journalist Zhang Zhen, 
whom the Chinese government has locked up for telling the truth about COVID-19, disappeared like the consciences of the millionaires and billionaires in Hollywood and the NBA and the IOC and Wall Street are all so eager for Chinese cash. They are pretending none of this is happening. There is no amount of money that can buy enough soap to wash that blood off their hands. And there are a lot of people, and he just mentioned some of them, and groups that apparently are happy to have that blood on their hands so long as they are counting stacks of sweet cash. And that's the decision that they've made. And it's shameful. And it's something we will continue to talk about. And if others want to highlight it as well, more power to them, we welcome it. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show on this Monday, coming up next. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy Hour. On this Monday, a new week on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in. Monday through Friday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is always free every day. Tune in tonight. I'll be on Kennedy, joining my dear friend, Fox Business Network, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, that hour. Hope to see you there with Kennedy. And the happy hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Oh, boy, was that consumed at the party this weekend, our Christmas party, it was just gone by the end of the night. Not even by the end of the night, sort of mid-party, it was already gone. We have the stats on that coming up in the home stretch later this hour. Well, they sponsor the happy hour regardless, even though we ran out of our supply, a big supply. TheLongDrink.com, that's their website. Delicious. Really, really good. A big hit. Molly Hemingway was tweeting about how much she liked it. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only, please. We are very pleased to welcome to the show for the first time Congresswoman Maria Salazar, Republican of Florida, the 27th District. Congresswoman, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Wonderful. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Absolutely. I want to start with something that you have proposed in Congress, the Crucial Communism Teaching Act. Tell us about this bill why you think it's necessary, and what it entails. Well, the bill is um, it's modeled after legislation that was presented in Florida and it was signed by Governor DeSantis. And basically what it does is that it offers a curriculum for high school students all over the United States to learn and understand the atrocities of communism in the last 70 years, where 100 million people have died at the hands of that ideology. We know that right now in American schools, we are teaching uh, to our children the horrors of American history. 
slavery, what we did with Native Americans, what happened with the Japanese in World War II. And I understand that, that sometimes they don't speak highly of Jefferson and they want to remove his statues, uh, statues in the different uh, legislations, uh, legislative uh, bodies around the country. But what we need to do is to also teach our children that the ideology called socialism, democratic socialism or communism, it's wonderful in, in, in theory, but it's horrible in practice. And unfortunately, we are not doing that. And that is why I introduced this legislation on the floor of the United States Congress to see what state and to see if we can pass it on the floor and then or offer, it's not a mandate, but offer the different states to put together this curriculum that we're putting through a foundation uh, on, on the atrocities of communism. Let me just give you a couple of, of uh, info details that I think are important. And 40% sure. of the millennials believe that communism is good. 30% of G- Gen Z, which is the, the generation that comes after the millennials, have a positive impression of socialism. Listen, I am the daughter of political refugees, Cuban political refugees in Miami. I'm first-generation American, a brown girl from the hood with an accent. And I do know that we have to give our children the knowledge so they will not come back to us and say, well, you never taught me, you never told me how Mm. bad this ideology is. And what I like about this is it's not a requirement. It would be an option for a curriculum for school districts to adopt. And something that you said, Congresswoman, I think really stuck out to me because, of course, we do and we should teach about the flaws of America in American history class. We have dark chapters. We have really serious ink blots on the history of our country, and we shouldn't shy away from them or avert our eyes. That's part of our history, and I think you want to avoid future mistakes by honestly confronting past mistakes. I'm okay with all of that. I'm not okay with teaching students and children that our flaws define us as a country or to even overblow the lasting impact of flaws that are now long rectified in this country. And of course, we can continue to strive to be better. We always should, right? And what you're arguing is If we're going to teach some of the bad chapters in our history, which we do, and as I said, I believe that's appropriate, we should also be teaching our students about truly evil political ideologies that are held by many of our adversaries and enemies, past and present. And I feel like we have a lot of American students and American children learning about all these horrible things about America, and in some ways I think it's disproportionate, without being taught what our enemies believe, what our enemies have done, especially on the front of communism. And it looks like your intention here is to try to push back against that and to educate new generations about something that is deeply evil. It's personal to you and your family. And unfortunately, it sounds like a lot of younger people in this country are ignorant on the evils of communism, which may not be their fault, but something needs to be done to correct that. It's our fault if we don't teach them. All, and, and you're right on the money. What we're trying to do is level the playing field. So we hear what happened in American history. But like you said, we do have some dark chapters, but we also have very glorious ones. Yes. And we corrected some of the mistakes. Absolutely, that slavery was horrendous, nefarious. 
therefore we correct her. And I, I absolutely love what we did to the Japanese in putting them in concentration camps during World War II. That was pernicious. Obviously that we understand, but at the same time, we have to say that we were the liberators of Europe. Otherwise, right. we would all be speaking Germany, German. And we have to tell our kids that this is the best country with the best system. We're not perfect. Only God is perfect, but we have a fantastic platform, economic platform, a social platform where everyone can stand on. And I am the best example. My parents, Cuban-Americans, I mean, Cuban refugees who left with $5 in their pocket came to the United States thanks to the fact that we gave them, that the United States gave them a visa. They came. I was born here. And look at me. I am a congresswoman for for District Number 27, the heart of the Cuban exile community. They understand what I'm saying. We're not perfect, I repeat, but we have the we give the best opportunities. And what we need to look for is equality in opportunity, not in quality in results. Because yep. the results depend on how much effort and, and interest you put into doing something. The growth of this country, what we what the United States represents is still the beacon of hope. So how could we not be teaching that to our own children in third grade? And saying yep. that critical race theory is the way to go and they have to feel guilty because they are white. No, no one is feeling guilty. And at the same and they time, talk, and they often talk, Congresswoman, about fairness and equality. And as you noted on paper, you might put this in front of, you know, some middle schoolers or high schoolers or college students and say, wouldn't this be more fair and equitable? But the reality is in practice Socialism and communism beget not equality, but inequality. And people who are influential and powerful get very rich and have special privileges and other people do not. And it also begets widespread misery and massive overreach by the governments enforcing those ideologies. And I think giving the tools to students to learn about these things – is extremely important. I want to ask you this, Congresswoman, and it ties into a very recent development within current events. I read a letter from Senator Rubio and Senator Scott, the two Republicans representing your state. They wrote a letter a few days ago to the Biden administration. They are expressing deep concern about a decision in the State Department to delist a group called FARC in Colombia, a Marxist revolutionary group, to delist them as a terrorist organization They were very alarmed by that decision from the Biden administration. I wonder if you have some thoughts on that. Absolutely. I have a lot of Colombian Americans in District Number 27, and they are here because of FARC. FARC is a guerrilla that was created more than 60 years ago that has ravaged Colombia, one of the most prosperous countries in the in the Western Hemisphere, in the Americas. And now they have become narco narco terrorists. So they are not only a terror, they're a guerrilla and they're Marxist and communist. And on top of that, now they're drug dealers because they are in cahoots with the drug dealers in Colombia. And on top of that, they are terrorists. We knew that. And the whole hemisphere knew about it. They were trained by Fidel Castro 60 years ago. Everyone knows about that. Then they signed a peace treaty five years ago that was not perfect and that preserved the fact that they could retain some of their weapons. It gave them the opportunity of continue helping the drug traffickers who are sending the drugs to the United States so our kids get damaged. 
and now the State Department wants to take them off that list. What does that do? It gives them visas to come to the United States, gives them uh, the possibility of receiving foreign aid from the United States and get uh, different loans from the World Bank and the IMF. So what are we doing? We're sending the wrong message. Socialism and communism is not the answer. And that's why I go back to the Zen, the G-Zen, and to the, uh, the millennials. We need to inform our future leaders who are the kids of today the atrocities of what ideology brings. Unfortunately, we have on the floor of the United States Congress many, de- many Democrat members of the Democrat, many uh, Congress people of the Democratic Party that do believe that democratic socialism is the way to go. And like I said, they drank the Kool-Aid, maybe because they may have good intentions, but they do not have a point of reference like we do in District 27. That it is, in theory, this is beautiful. In, in practice, is misery. It's oppression, exile, and repression. Congresswoman Salazar, I want to ask you a political question because I went back earlier today in preparation for our interview and looked at the last few cycles in your district. You challenged the incumbent Democrat in 2018, which was a big Democratic year. You had a good showing. You had a fair amount of name recognition because of your career in television down in Miami, and you fell short in 2018. You ran again in 2020. You won. It was tight, but you won. There was a very interesting shift toward the right among many people in your district, in Miami-Dade County in particular. Uh, Florida is getting redder. I know there was uh, some concern just a few years ago that it might get bluer. It is getting redder, and we saw that in Miami-Dade County in 2020. As you look ahead to 2022, how are you feeling about your race? It's definitely a swing district. The Democrats are going to be coming after you. You're a first-term you know, freshman, but an incumbent. How are things looking ahead of next November, where things stand right now? Well, we are always in the hands of God. So God will determine what's going to happen in 22. But I do know that District 27, and I thank you very much for bringing that up, I was probably the biggest upset in the country. It was the only district where, uh, outside of California, where President Biden won the district, but the sitting incumbent was, um, was taken out. And why did that happen? Well, because I'm a brown girl from the hood, and I know who I'm representing. And I know that regardless whether they are Cubans or Colombians or Brazilians or Venezuelans or Central Americans, and even if they're Democrats, they know how nefarious and the threats of communism and socialism are to their children. And that's why we won. Unfortunately, my, my opponent declared herself to be a pragmatic socialist. What? Does that mean anything, anything that has to do with socialism? You've got to run the other way because it only brings misery, oppression and exile for a future generation. And that is the reason why I won. Thank God for that and for the voters. And I'm presenting this new bill on the floor of the United States Congress so we can give the same type of experience to the rest of the nation and to preserve the idea that this is still the best country in, on earth the one that offers you the biggest possibilities to grow economically, physically, spiritually, and, and, and to grow as a human being. No other, and we know it very well. And we will be watching these developments and your proposals very closely in Congress. And, of course, your race in 2022, another big one as Republicans, they're going to have to win your district again in order to 
keep building and try to win back the majority. They want to hold a seat like yours and then expand the map elsewhere. And you can hear the passion in her voice. Congresswoman Maria Salazar, she is now the incumbent. She's a spark plug. Big upset, as she said last year. And we'll see if she can make it two in a row next year with that rightward shift across the state of Florida, including down in Miami. Congresswoman, we appreciate your time. Welcome to the show. We'd love to have you back. Congresswoman Maria Salazar of Florida 27. Thank you so much. Long live the United States. And thanks to you. Bye-bye. Amen. Thank you so much, Congresswoman. We'll be right back. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. We are on the Guy Benson Show. Quick review of championship weekend in college football. Almost all of the games were terrible. I mean, just blowouts. The one exception was Baylor against Oklahoma in the Big 12 championship game. That was exciting. First and goal with time expiring, and the Baylor defense stops Oklahoma State on four consecutive plays with the Cowboys coming like an inch or two short of the pylon and a touchdown for the win. That was the best game of the weekend, although I will say in college basketball, Northwestern went and beat Maryland for the first time at Maryland ever. So that was great, but that's a different sport. I just had to say something positive about Northwestern athletics after the football season that we had. But the rest of the games in college football, just not close. Utah with a blowout win Friday night for the Pac-12. Then the much-anticipated SEC game, Georgia and Alabama. The nightmare happened again for Georgia fans. Hot start, up 10-0 on Bama and Saban, and then the wheels came off. And that vaunted Georgia defense looked awful. What, did they hang 40 on them? A blowout, easy victory for Alabama, and they win the SEC again. Then in the nightcap, Big Ten, Michigan just pounded Iowa. Not really a contest. Michigan seems to be peaking at the right time. Now, can they hang with Georgia in the playoffs? We'll see about that. Cincinnati won pretty easily. I said they're going to be in. In fact, I woke up Sunday morning. I thought about the outcomes, and I said, I think you're going to have to have Alabama at number one, Michigan number two, Georgia dropping to three, being displaced by Alabama at number one, and then Cincinnati. You can't drop Cincinnati out of the top four. And I said, it's probably going to be in that order because Cincinnati took care of business. Talk, well, what about Notre Dame? They beat Notre Dame in South Bend. And then, what, a few hours later, the committee announced their decisions, and it was the big reveal on ESPN. And I have to say, I nailed it. Bama, Michigan, Georgia, Cincinnati in that order. So the semifinals of the playoff will be New Year's Eve. It'll be number one Alabama versus number four Cincinnati in Texas. And then down in Miami, Michigan-Georgia could be a great game. I don't know who to root for because I have really good friends who are Georgia fans. And I don't like Jim Harbaugh, but I'm a Big Ten guy, so I kind of root for the Big Ten. Probably root for Michigan. I don't know. And then if Georgia wins and Alabama, if they both win, can Georgia get their act together and avenge the loss? Because they looked lost against Alabama. I just, I want anyone but Alabama to win this thing. I've had enough. And in that respect, it was a disappointing weekend for sure. All right, we got a break. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Much more to come, including our party recap that's coming up shortly. It's The Guy Benson Show. Stay with us.
talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. As we continue, it's the happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Earlier in today's program, Byron York stopped by. Chief political correspondent at The Washington Examiner and a Fox News contributor. We talked about a number of different issues, including the media. Byron had a lot to say. Here's part of that conversation with Byron York. Let's start with this. There's some news here, some breaking news on the Chris Cuomo scandal. So over the weekend, Cuomo was fired by CNN. We knew that some bad information had come out in some text messages. We had Howie Kurtz on the show, and Kurtz suggested they've got to do something here. And shortly thereafter, this was now days ago, they announced an indefinite suspension of the primetime host and the younger brother of the disgraced, resigned former governor of New York. And then on Saturday, it was announced by the network that they had retained counsel, that they had begun investigating. New information had come to light. Rumors are that it may have had to do with uh, sexual harassment or something like that. We don't know. But they decided to move from an indefinite suspension to just a parting of ways and a firing. So the new news that just broke minutes ago is that Cuomo, I guess he has a radio show as well. He's gotten into trouble, actually. He's admitted some things on the radio that undermine some of his previous stories about COVID, a few other Small details. We don't have to get bogged down there. But he is walking away from his radio show as well. Apparently his contract was coming up with a Sirius XM, and he is pulling the plug there. There's also a report, Byron, that Chris Cuomo is preparing to sue CNN. So this is getting very messy, very ugly, and it's being reported that Cuomo is telling people Jeff Zucker, who runs CNN, is sort of trying to pretend, oh, well, we didn't know this stuff. We weren't aware of some of the, you know, journalistic ethical breaches here or the extent of them. And Cuomo allegedly is telling people Zucker absolutely knew. So the plot very much thickens following the firing of Chris Cuomo, Byron. Yeah, I think the the last thing you mentioned is very important, which is that they're going to start um, pointing fingers at each other here. And that, uh, I mean, look, this stuff happened really, really fast. I, I wrote my newsletter about this, I believe, on Friday morning, and I used a headline, you know, what does it take to get fired at CNN, looking, of course, um, at the Jeffrey Tubin case as well. And yeah. uh, what was interesting is, uh, as of Friday morning, the New York Times reported that CNN had not engaged an outside investigator to look into this. You know, it's very common for a big company, if they have a scandal or, or something, or something, they will hire a law firm, an outsider, to come in and supposedly take a disinterested look at what is going on. But the, the, the Times reported specifically that CNN did not do that. Um, and also, at that same time, uh, we knew that Jeff uh, Zucker had been very, very uh, forgiving uh, of Chris Cuomo the last time around, said, well, he had made a mistake. This happened in May. But it's kind of normal. It's understandable. You know, he might get emotional and put his family first. My full interview with Byron York of The Washington Examiner and Fox News, available on our podcast, along with the rest of the show, each day, every day, for free, on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch. oh, what a night it was. Our party at our house on Saturday night, it was pretty epic. The team, for the most part, made it. Christine survived. The house did too, thank goodness. 
We'll have that recap straight ahead on the home stretch. Stay with us. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch, Monday edition on the Guy Benson Show. Glad you are here with us. And boy, did we hype it enough. Christmas party from Saturday night. We talked about it really for weeks on and off and then in earnest quite a bit Thursday and Friday last week. And I will say, from my perspective, I'm biased as the co-host with Adam, that we talked about it. We did the after action report the next day. I think it was great. I think it was a big success. It was our biggest party yet. We had 94 people in the house, which is a lot. We were nervous because the RSVPs were 112, 113, and there's always attrition. So the number was 94. How did we get that number? We have one of those ring doorbells. So Adam went back and counted every single person and actually – witnessed some hilarious things of people as they were arriving and leaving because there's a microphone too. So we got to see producer Christine, for example, fighting with Bobby, her husband, about whether or not to just open the door or to ring or to knock. And Bobby wanted to just come in. And Christine was like, Bobby, don't. And then he opens the door and they all walked in. We got to relive that special moment when we were counting the guests. But it was terrific. We went until I think our final guests left at 1.30 in the morning. Believe it or not, that was not producer Christine. She was not the the last hanger on. But it was great. The people that we brought in to help us were fantastic. Really fun to see so many of our Fox colleagues and my colleagues at Town Hall also show up. And a good time, it seemed, was had by all. But again, I am biased. I was doing my best to be a good host. And my biggest regret from the evening was not getting to spend more time with more people because obviously these are all of our friends. So you want to maximize time with everyone, but you have to make sure that you are at least seeing everyone and making sure the guacamole has been replenished, right? And make sure that the extra supply of long drink has been opened. We went back, so we had purchased 48 bottles of wine, 44 of which were consumed, which is pretty wild. That's a lot. Now, in terms of what people brought as gifts, we now have 26 new bottles of wine and other bottles of liquor. And I want to thank everyone who brought gifts. Very nice gift from Wyatt. Nice gift from producer Christine. Maxi brought a clever gift that we really appreciated as well. I will add Dan, our new engineer, couldn't make it due to a prior commitment, which is a bummer for us, but he made the right call not coming. Got to keep the girlfriend happy, period. Right? So I, I fully endorse that decision. But we had 44 bottles of wine consumed. We had 80 beers that we had purchased. 78 of them were consumed. We had 96 cans of long drink. We had a few stray cans, more than that, but they may have been consumed before the party for the last couple nights before that. So we had 96 cans of long drink, all of which are gone. Our bartender was like, what is this stuff? Everyone keeps asking for it. I'm like, oh, how much time do you have? I could like launch into the whole long drink spiel. TheLongDrink.com. So, but it was, it was, uh, 
it was fun. We had a great time. The question is, how did producer Christine behave herself? And does the team, at least those team members who attended, are they in agreement with my assessment? One other note briefly, by the way, we did have, unlike years past, we did have the TV on in the main living room because of the championship games, SEC and then Big Ten. I don't like having the TV on during this kind of party, but if you're going to schedule a party on championship Saturday in college football, this is America and people are going to be interested and we felt like we did not want to preclude the opportunity to watch the game and still hang out and enjoy the party. So we had it on. We had a few people who were fans of Georgia. Womp womp, as I mentioned earlier, and Alabama. We had a few Michigan fans there, maybe one Iowa fan. So they were grateful. I think that was a good on-the-fly decision. Now, Christine, among the gifts that she brought, was a little Christmas tree ornament that is now hanging On our Christmas tree in our house, it is a little pony that says R.I.P. on it. She wrote R.I.P. on this pony. And, of course, this is Carousel the Pony, who has now been memorialized on our Christmas tree, which is a little bit macabre. It's a little bit ghoulish. But someone has to remember the legacy and memory of sweet Carousel. And I thought that that was was pretty funny. We posed for a few photographs there. And Christine, apparently there were, admittedly, a few spills at this party. When you have 100 people in the house, someone's going to spill something. So there was a few glasses that shattered at one point. There was some red wine that went down onto a white couch, which was not ideal. They worked hard to get it out, and I think it's looking pretty good, actually. But whenever there was a mishap, apparently, producer Christine would put her hands up And shout, it wasn't me, to make clear that that was not her fault. Although at one point, she did spill some of her booze on the ground and Roy went and licked it up. My dog. And I will say, all day yesterday on Sunday, Roy was very out of sorts. He was exhausted. I think part of it was he was just overwhelmed, being loved by 90 people or whatever over the course of hours. He got so much attention, it overwhelmed his little doggy brain. And he needed a full day to recover. In fairness, I needed most of that day to recover as well. He just slept basically all day. But I think part of it was he was hungover because producer Christine got Roy drunk by spilling her booze all over the place. And Roy, for the first time ever, I mean, it was like, you know, he's five. So in dog years, what is that? I'm going to say early adulthood. Maybe this was his going off to college, trying alcohol for the first time with a bad influence. And he was struggling the next day. Producer Christine, did you feed my dog alcohol on purpose or was it really a mistake? Or was this like a wink kind of mistake? Well, let's just say Roy and Auntie Cookie felt the same way yesterday. It was a rough go. But um, I, in fairness, did not mean to feed the dog alcohol, I was leaning down to pet little Roy and someone pushed into me and there went my white wine. And I have to say, I purposely, oh, I think I took a roadie of red wine home, but I did not drink red (laughs) wine. Right, Wyatt? I'm pretty sure I had a roadie. 
which I don't know if you're supposed to, but I did not drink. He's just he's just shaking his head. He doesn't want to comment on what may have happened in the Uber. I definitely fell asleep on him. <laughs> I definitely fell asleep what, on did him. Did you have like? Did you pass out in your Uber, clutching red wine in the back seat? Or is I, that red wine also gone? I by think that I did because when I woke up, there was like you had the little red solo cups, right? We did. Yeah, I had one of those with some red wine in it on my nightstand. So I must have wow. brought it with me. And I do know that uh, Bobby said that I was uh, shouting to the boys, we're going to a bar. And Bobby said, no, she's not. She is going to bed. <laughs> Good night, boys. <laughs> and that's what happened. You went to sleep. Were you the one that had to drive back to New Jersey the next day or was that Bobby? Oh, in no, no. Shape? Bobby, would, uh, Bobby does not. Um, Christine has a problem when she drives on highways. As Bobby always says, uh, Cookie likes to go 95 on 95. And uh, Bobby does not like that. So, no, usually when we're in the car together, Bobby is driving. So he drove. Because you're a lead foot. Yes, I have a heavy foot. So Bob drove. I slept. Max, I think, dozed off a few times on the way home. And then Bobby woke us up halfway through so we can get some uh, Burger King at the rest stop, which was delicious. (laughs) You cannot go wrong with Burger King. And then, uh, yeah, it was a quick ride home. It was a, an amazing weekend. You threw such a great party. It was so nice to see so many people. And it was funny because uh, Bobby said, do you know a lot of people here? And I said, I do, but they probably don't know me because when I book them, it's either through email or by the phone. We don't really see a ton of people. So every time I would, you know, say, hi, you know, I'm Christine. I'm Guy Benson's producer. And, oh, my gosh. You know, and then it was like we were all best friends, which, duh, I knew it was going to happen. Uh, very, Wyatt, Wyatt, I, I have to ask Wyatt, did she try to book people at the party or did she maintain a healthy distance on that front? On that front, she did. On other fronts, I cannot comment. Like what, for like example? What? Wyatt. Hypothetically. <laughs> I'm just going to say we all had such a great time okay. and it really was such a great party and it was so great for everyone to be together after COVID and everything that's happened. It was just a, a really good time. It really was a lot of fun. I will say this. It's hard to pick a favorite guest out of so many and so many people that we loved and people just had a fabulous time and people were hilarious and telling stories and all this stuff. I have to give a special shout out to Dr. Nicole Sapphire's husband because for this reason, he and I don't know, but I think he had had a few glasses of wine or something, let's just say. And he was uh, feeling very generous, apparently, and he insisted that I am the spitting image of Ryan Reynolds, <laughs> the actor. Like He's like, no, no, I really mean it. You look just like him. And, I mean, fact check, LOL. No. But he was like, oh, yeah, no, the face, your mannerisms, like I'm, I'm sure you've got those, those abs. I'm like, oh, I assure you I do not. But I told Dr. Sapphire, because he's also Dr. Sapphire, they're both doctors, but I told our Dr. Sapphire on the way out, I said, I will forever love your husband just for saying that. I don't care that it's not true. I will cling to that compliment probably for years, honestly. I'll be like, you know, people have told me. Many people are saying. (laughs) Anyway, all right, Christine, scale of one to ten, party-wise, and I know you're a tough judge because you're you're a party girl. How do you rank this one? Oh, that was a full 10. 
I have to say. It was really, wow. really fun. Bobby had the best time. My husband was very festive in his attire. Yes. Cat, um, Cat Tim <laughs> came festive. Nicole Sapphire oh, yeah. came. And oh, wait, wait, hold on. On a scale of one to 10, how classy was my outfit? I have to admit, I don't remember. Oh. I oh. don't. In fact, here, let me let me check my Instagram because I did post some photos, including of our little crew. We got some of the Fox people all in one photo, but not everyone because we didn't corral everyone at exactly the right time. So here's Molly Hemingway and Kat Tim, Katie Pavlich, Matt Finn. All right, scrolling through here. Oh, yeah, that's that's a nice uh, – a nice outfit for producer Christine. I applaud the outfit. If people are curious, here's Quiet Wyatt. I think he's hugging people, but behind behind those people, he's he's got a copy of the Wall Street Journal. He would go out to the front porch just to read a few columns, come back in. Now, I have to say about— Have a sip of scotch. <laughs> I have to say— Because he was really feeling wild. Quiet Wyatt was a little partier this weekend. We, we met up with him uh, for lunch on Saturday, Bobby and I. And he was uh, he was feeling tired because he was partying till almost two in the morning the night before. And he told wow. me he did a shot, which I was shocked about. Was that your first ever shot, Wyatt? No, I've done shots before. Wow, I right. was I was disappointed I didn't do any with Christine, but that's that's next year or next party. That's for the best. Shots, we did not need shots. I did. I mean, I ran to. through the numbers. We had more than enough alcohol consumed by the people. At this party, shots were not going to be necessary there. If you want to see these photos, you can follow me on Instagram. I also tweeted them. Same handle on both Instagram and Twitter, at Guy P. Benson. Uh, They're fun. Now I'm scrolling through and I'm sort of like jealous of us. I want to go and do it again. Hopefully next year. Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. That was fun. Back to your regularly scheduled programming in our homestretch nonsense tomorrow. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you then. Listen to be part of the conversation with me, Brian Kilmeade. I'll talk about the biggest stories of the day and get your take along with some of the biggest newsmakers around. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the podcast at BrianKilmeadeShow.com. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.